Welcome to the P3 Podcast. The ProNoctis Performance Podcast is the place to be if you're interested in topics such as mindset, coaching, personal development, elite performance, and leadership development. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this latest edition of the P3 Podcast. I'm pretty excited to have our guest today. It's somebody that I've been meaning to chat to over the last couple of months, but we'll explain the reason why we haven't got the time to catch up. And it's not COVID-related, actually. It's good news-related. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Sherry Pridd, a more, more affectionately known as Shez, to the P3 Podcast. How are you doing, Shez? I'm all right. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on board. And I'm excited to share the last few months with everyone. <laughs> I know. As soon as I had lined you up anyway, so yourself and Phil from Brother, I was like, right, great. Season two is coming up with the P3 podcast. Who would I really like to speak to on that? And then the news broke and I was like, right, I won't quite text yet asking you to come on because I can imagine what your world's like. We'll come on to that because the people listening will probably won't know. So whistle stop to it. My understanding, Shares, is in the 90s, 2000s, you were a professional female racer racing all over the world, having a fantastic individual career. And then you went into cycling management, as we'd call it, for non-cyclists, obviously director sportive, team owner, and obviously owner of your own business with Sherry Pridham Racing. And then for the last 10 years, you've led British-based teams through numerous sort of guises, if you like, to be able to compete at UK and world level. And then I would have thought the last four months has been really, really difficult because yet again, you've had to go around that cycle of really fighting to get team sponsors and to keep this team alive, ready for the 2021 season, mm. which of course was not easy with the market within businesses last year, you know, in terms of putting their hands in their pocket. And then from my perspective, looking on the outside, out of nowhere, this news breaks where you're going to be a director sportive for one of the biggest teams in the world. Israel startup nation. So there's a massive big picture story that I understand it, but let's focus on the last four, six weeks. So you've gone from your baby, your team having to have the difficult decision of folding it to go into an immense job with a fantastic challenge ahead. What's the last four to six weeks been like? I guess I can probably rewind it to about June, I think. And I was still absolutely certain that Beatles Pro Cycling would be carrying on this year at worst as an elite team you know and in my mind I thought you know I'm a fighter and I can do this you know but as lockdown progressed and the pandemic and COVID was still dominating everything we were dead certain I think you and I had a chat about potential sponsor and we were dead close to signing that sponsorship for three years and in my own mind I was set for another three years potentially with a different you know title But, you know, we kept pushing, kept pushing. And then I got the devastating news that this particular sponsor had second thoughts. They were going to take their business online. And unfortunately, there was no sponsorship for Sherry Freedom Racing or the continuation of that sort of project. So I still believed we could carry through. And even till about August time, I still thought I kept the riders in the picture. And I just said, look, you know, the team potentially is still going to go through. We're still chatting with other partners, but we're going to be an elite team because there's no way I can run a team on the budget I know I've got then and deliver what I'm used to delivering. And I've always been a person that if I can't do it well, then there's no point in half-heartedly doing it. And then it wasn't till the end of September that we lost another couple of small sponsors, particularly for the same reason, but also, you know, that made me think, right, I need to figure out what I can do here. I still want to be able to pay the staff and the riders till the end of 2020. As it is, I couldn't. I needed to come up with something. So I thought I'm going to have to apply for normal daytime, real jobs, you know, real life jobs, not the cycling jobs. So I went through that painful process and it was painful, you know, just dipping my toes into the real world and having to formulate CVs and sit in front of people that are from the real world almost. 
that terrified the hell out of me. But I still believe that Beatles Pro Cycling would carry on, you know, as an elite team. And then in a nutshell, we'd had a board meeting. And I think it was that particular day that I knew that I'm sort of kidding myself right here and I need to look at reality. And if I take this team through, what happens if we're still in this pandemic in March and April? What happens if I lose the sponsors that I've got on board? And there was no way, almost under my watch, I was prepared to have the team fail. So I made the decision, or we collectively made a decision on board, that it was the right time to close the team. And that's kind of how it went. And we gave ourselves till the end of, we said deadline till the end of November. But effectively, I think I knew in my own mind, probably middle of November, that the team wasn't going to go forward. From my understanding, Shaz, obviously, if you're going to have a team race the next year, you have to register in the autumn, don't you? You have to pay all the race fees and all that. So you have to commit quite yeah. a substantial amount of time in terms of the application form. That's right. On money very early. So that must have been playing on your mind as well. Because I'd already, in my own mind, decided that we were going to run as an elite team. That pressure of delivering the bank guarantees and the funds that we need to pay up front to carry on as a UCI team, that pressure was almost not there. So that sort of relief of having that stress was already gone. Yeah, I can imagine. So obviously, there's almost like a perfect storm there as well. I think that you needed to change sponsors. So you're transitioning out of a contract. 2020 was obviously a hard one for everybody, you know, especially businesses. So that ability to have that corporate social responsibility funding or that external marketing budget was cut back. Take the pandemic out of it. Were conversations just been more difficult than ever? Because obviously you've been through that before. You've rebranded, you've had new sponsors many times in your career with yeah. the teams you sponsored. Was last year just like no other level? Yeah, I mean, like you say, take the pandemic out of it. It was still so difficult to get doors to open and almost sell a British team because of where British cycling have been and the whole kind of selection with Tour of Britain and the sort of lack of racing here in the UK. The motivation for younger riders was becoming less and less. So it's more difficult to try and sell a British team to race a British programme, let alone try and bring foreign riders into the UK and give them mm. what 12 races so it was a fight right from the word go but with, you know this kind of feeling of what was sort of occurring in the domestic scene is not an overnight thing it's been sort of building I'd say from the back end of 2017 really. I think that was when we first got involved in it a couple of years before that and there, there was definitely a shift change where in the men's racing world you know riders in the UK were getting a decent salary you know probably above the national average salary as a whole where they had a good living for what they did. And we had some big sponsors and big names and big name teams out there. And then something changed around that time, didn't it? Where some of the bigger sponsors pulled out, wages went down. Everybody was trying to, certainly yeah. riders were trying to play teams off each other to get a higher income because they wanted to stay full time. Yeah. The whole landscape changed, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think having that sort of owning a team strategy is completely different to just being a team manager or a sports director, because essentially I'm now looking at all the commercial side of things. And that was scary in itself because I know what it takes to deliver a successful team. But I knew in my heart of hearts that we weren't going to be able to deliver that because particularly 2020, we couldn't guarantee Tour of Yorkshire, we couldn't guarantee Tour of Britain even. So that sell becomes less and less. And if there's no activation for sponsors other than the basic stuff that every team does, how are you going to sell that to somebody? You know, so it's almost as if COVID or the pandemic is almost fingers crossed. Let's hope that the domestic scene gets a sort of reboot and a rebuild that it so desperately needs, you know. It almost needs that full cycle, doesn't it? In terms of 
a lot of the riders don't get paid, but it's a platform for them, isn't it? That if they're talented and they're dedicated and they do well, it becomes a springboard rather than four or five years ago. It was a place where really talented riders that could have gone on to World Tour were probably cruising because they were earning enough. It's got to go back to that developmental approach of, well, look, let's start from the grassroots up. Let's get talented riders. Yeah. Let's invest time and energy in them. And let's draw that attraction, which will bring sponsors anyway. So it almost goes round in circles. So immensely yeah. difficult. And I want to talk a little bit more about the specifics about that later on. But how did you go from that then to the amazing news in terms of... It was of- kind of, um, I sort of sat you going, well, I'm not, I've applied for, well, at the time I can remember, it was 49 normal jobs, you know, from police force to fire brigade absolutely everything because I thought I'm gonna have to earn a living here you know to not only try and still manage the team but I still need to live and pay the bills so Mm. I just thought well why can't I put my name out there to world tour teams well I've got to lose you know so I did pick maybe a handful of teams that I thought I would like to join and that was it I just emailed and I think I had a response within 24 hours from one of them at a bit of a chat. And I think the first real contact I had was, of course, Israel Startup. And that went from an email to an hour phone call to the next thing I know, I've got a contract. And the way that happened is still a little bit spooky, to be fair, because the day we decided to close the team, I sort of came home, sat with family and said, you know, this is it. You know, we're closing the team down. It was a few tears and you know, I started ringing the riders. We sat down for tea and opened up a bottle of wine. And I think it was about half nine. I had an email from Israel Startup Nation going, we'd like you on board. This is your contract. (laughs) And it happened the same day as I closed the team down. So that's how bizarre it was. And I cried like a baby. The pressure of closing one side down and the heartache of, I don't know, 12 years of building everything that we had up to the end of that team to then starting the next chapter and realizing, is this really happening? Can it happen that way? And then it was sort of, we had about two or three weeks where I didn't hear anything and I was waiting for the contract and I was like, at least I've tried, you know, and then all of a sudden it came and I don't know, it was just the most bizarre day ever. It's almost an element of synchronicity, isn't it? You know, where it was meant to be, where things come together. And I can only imagine being in your head that day of, what a roller coaster and what amounts of mixed emotions you're going through in terms of obviously disappointment and yeah. devastation of losing your team that you've been looking after for so long and you've been nurturing to the relief of having a job, as you say, to pay your bills and then the excitement of going on a world tour of wherever that could take you. It must be... Yeah, to be honest, the emotion of closing the team down, it was an emotion of almost relief. I can't explain the relief I had when I did decide to close the team because all of a sudden... All that sponsorship, equipment, rider, race program issue was just gone. Hmm. It was a massive relief. And I almost needed some breathing time for that to happen. And then kind of start thinking about where I was going. But in less than a few hours, I knew where I was going. And I never really thought about the significance of the ISN role until I think probably a day or two after they made the announcement. It's amazing. So what people don't realise, you are now the first ever female director sportive of any World Tour men's cycling team. So you have broke through that glass ceiling. And because of that, the media has gone crazy. And we've seen that. We've shared articles that I've stumbled across that you probably haven't seen because it has gone mad. And the demand for your time has been huge. So the fact that you've been proactive and backed yourself and gone for it is a massive testament to yourself, isn't it? In terms of, right, why not? Why not me? Yeah, and I think that goes as far back as when I was, you know, 11 years old and having to race with the junior boys because there wasn't girls racing and the whole way through 
without even thinking about my life as it was is I never really gave it much thought. I just sort of cracked on. And I think swimming the earth for something is something I've probably always done without thinking about it carefully. I mean, even when I wanted to turn professional, I never gave it a thought. I knew exactly when I finished my degree in Cape Town that I had a British passport and I was going to come back to the UK and I was going to arrive to Great Britain. I didn't know how that process all unfolded, but I did it because in my mind, that's what I want to do. And it's always been a goal and ambition of mine to one day be at a grand tour and that's as far as I thought as far as my ambition went and I think that's just followed me through my whole rider stroke management career even when I became a sports director in the UK I was the only female at Conti level I think for a long time there might be one or two now but don't give it much thought it obviously proves to work for you doesn't it because like you said you know I knew where I wanted to go and I need to head in that direction I'm just going you just make it work don't you everything just falls into place and through dedication good positive relationships and I like and obviously being highly competent, it sort of pays off. I wouldn't mind revisiting that point. You touched on racing as a junior and racing against the boys and that. If you could paint a picture for the racing environment, because again, female, bike racing. Funny enough, Garen Thomas, the Tour de France winner, was on this series as well on episode one. And I was chatting to him about the common ground with myself and him as being brought up in South Wales. And I said to him, I'm only a few years older than you. And if I turned up at my local rugby club in Lycra on a bike with my leg shaved, I would have got my head kicked in. And he giggled his head off and he went, I nearly did. He said, so, you know, I'd have to wear tracksuit bottoms for PE in school because I didn't want the lads to take a mickey out of me because I was the outlier. Nobody else was riding bikes. Yeah, It was my passionate and my love. What was your sort of introduction to it like and where you were brought up? Again, I never, ever have given it a thought, the fact that I'm a female and there are males. I've just gone about being me. I've genuinely never given it much thought at all. There obviously are always challenges that you have to face, you know, particularly those of back when I was younger, having to race with men. And then effectively, when I came here, a lot of the elite women here in the 90s were having to race with the men to get that strength of competition in order to prepare for bigger races abroad. So I genuinely not thought about it, never. It's brilliant, doesn't it? And I think more often than not, it's, and if you think back to the schoolyard with the girls, we had girls playing football with us in school and it's more of a problem for the boys and the men yeah. than for the girls, you know? And I think that's a theme that we'll touch on later on in terms of when you're in a boardroom and having discussions and debates about what's going on, that it's yeah. more of a problem. And it says more about the man in the room than the female because it's just crack on, just we're all here to play together. So how did you get into management then? So you've obviously had a fantastic cycling career yourself. I can't remember, did I read that there was an unfortunate hit and run which sort of ended your... Yeah, so it would have been about 2006. I came back from France at the time to ride the British National Championships and just one kilometre from home, I went through a four-way junction and a car didn't stop, hit me sort of side head on and left me with some significant injuries. And those injuries almost took about 18 months. I had both of my shoulders broken, collarbone, jaw, hip, and so on, wrist as well. And I had several surgeries over the 18 months, but still, again, believed that I'd be a bike rider. And then, unfortunately, I contracted meningococcal meningitis not far into 18 months of the accident. And I think it was that particular illness that allowed me to sit up and think that actually, you know what, cycling isn't the be all and end all here, you know. And I was fortunate at the time that Eddie, my partner, was involved in sports as a team manager for GB Juniors. And I learned shotgun with Eddie for probably two years or so. I sat next to Ed and learned, I guess, the essence of driving in convoys and team managers meetings and everything like that. I still never thought that that's the direction I would go in. And then 
as a consequence of the accident, I just signed a sponsorship deal and that sponsorship deal now couldn't go ahead because obviously I wasn't going to race at the level we thought. So the sponsor at the time just said, look, why don't we create a little junior team? And that was a men's team. And I think that's how it started. I started off with four and then six junior riders. And we were one of the top junior teams in the country. And we sort of took those riders to under 23. And it wasn't long before we were noticed. And then Rally UK um, sort of approached us. And, and then the rest is history, as I say. That makes a lot of sense in terms of how you've bridged that. And then obviously we know the next sort of few years and the success you had in UK yeah. and overseas. I really want to get into the concept that I really want to talk to you about with this women in leadership. And obviously we won't go into specifics in terms of names and locations, but how tough have you found it going into boardrooms, trying to get boards on site and sponsors on site? Have you found it a challenge as a woman? Yes and no. I think it's the mindset that you have to have when you go in there and confidence is absolutely everything. But don't get me wrong, there's always one or there's always someone that you come across who they'll be talking to you, but not necessarily talking to me directly. They will be talking to the others, whereas I'm the one that's making the decision. I think you're always going to have that. It's just how life is. But I think it's how you manage that position. But you do have a lot of instances where you come home and you think, bloody hell, that was tough, you know. God's sake, just accept us for who we are and what we do. You know, if you're good enough for the job, then whether you're male or female, then you should be able to get the job. Yeah, exactly. The right person for the job. The rest of it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I was telling you a story offline earlier about there was a moment where I had one of our female consultants with us and we were presenting a report to a board. And I presented my element and my consultant presented theirs. And then the board just started talking to me again about the points raised by our consultant. And yeah. I was like frowning. I was going, why are you asking me? That's this person. They're the ones who got the information. I did something. I probably didn't do enough. And I think that's part of the problem in terms yeah. of, I said, well, what do you think? You know, rather than that, where I should have probably called it out. I've gone, guys, why are you chatting to me? I'm not briefing you now. It's this, this person. So yeah, chat yeah. to them. And I think sometimes, especially the old school men, should we say, they just need to be embarrassed a little bit sometimes. Yeah. What about moving forward then? So plans, excitement, obviously you could be going anywhere this world, COVID dependent. How yeah, excited? I think the excitement's almost past now. I'm sort of at the stage now where I just want to get cracking. We've already had a sports directors meeting in December. The excitement was then, if you like, so sort of jumping on the plane and meeting everybody for the first time. And these are sports directors that you only see on telly or in a convoy. So all of a sudden I'm sat with you know, Eric van der Lanker and Dirk de Mol, and now I'm on a team with them. So it soon wore off, I think, the smile from year to year when we had two days in and we realised, well, I realised the amount of work that we've got to do to make this team successful and be a part of a successful team because we all have to be on the same page and essentially we all have to, right from day one, understand what the team's objectives are. So after two days, I was like, right, this is it. And now in January, I just want to hopefully get to the training camp and get in a team car and meet all the riders and get the season going. So as we stand, obviously COVID's very much still gripping us I and mean, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Is that still affecting your planning? Do you know what races are or aren't happening? Or are you just planning as if it's all happening? I've certainly got my programme, but who knows? You know, mm. we've just gone into the lockdown again. Several countries are, and that's one reason why we, as a team, Israel Startup Nation, are not travelling to Israel because it's just too risky. I and mean, there's too much risk and cost involved, you know, to even put so many people at risk. And we just have to take that as it comes, you know. 
I hope we can travel when I need to travel and we'll do the necessary paperwork. But at the end of the day, if a government's saying the borders are closed or whatever, then there's nothing I can do about that, you know. For sure. Can you give us an insight in terms of from an outside looking in at the World Tour cycling? So I can only imagine the logistics put in place. Now, I know that there's so many races that the whole team's going to enter, but there could be three teams racing on the same day in different parts of the world. To give you an idea of the size of ISN, I think as a whole, including the Continental team, we have just over 100 staff members. And that involves 32 World Tour riders and then the Conti team. I think there's 12 riders on the Conti team plus the staff. And there's over 70 staff members for that. So you can imagine that the logistics of working the race programme is just mind-blowing, you know, just to see well over 300 races on the calendar and how, you know, two sports directors, three sports directors, four mechanics, team doctors, masseurs, bus drivers, how that is split across the board. So, yeah, it's mind-blowing, really. Yeah, I can imagine. What's the contrast like? Because obviously with Vitas and all your teams before, you literally did everything. Are you having to be more specific now in terms of your role? Yeah, so effectively with my job, I'm just a sports director part of a group of sports directors that are underneath the the general manager and the head DS. So there's plenty of other people. I'm still learning who's who. And there seems to be so many different people doing, like you said, the job that I used to do. So that's taking some getting used to. But, you know, they have the same issues, the same challenges as I did when I owned the team, just on a mahoose of scale, as you can imagine. There's bikes and kit and particularly now I'd be stressing terribly if I was still running a team here and thinking of the challenges of how to get a British team across to Europe. Just the insurances alone and the PCR tests that we have to do three days prior to travel, getting a PCR test now to come back again. So that's a major logistics challenge that we've never faced before, let alone bring the word Brexit into the whole challenge. But to see the last few weeks, to see the build of the training camp and the amount of effort that that goes into, it's kind of a nice relief that I'm just a sports director at the end of the day. (laughs) I can imagine some of the conversations later on in the season where obviously you get to know the wider team and especially the logistics and the sport team and they'll be telling you the challenges and you'll be like, yeah, yeah, I know that. I know that challenge. (laughs) And the same is I just looked at the planning for the training camp and the number of flights the poor lady's got to go through to get everybody to one place is just oh lie in a dark room job after you've done that let alone that's just for the training camp yeah that's not the races so again you know obviously the riders are based all over the world aren't they and yeah. they've got to get them into you know one set location for a set period of time so logistically when you were saying about you know the pcr test in terms of you've got to isolate for 72 hours so you've got to have your own admin sorted haven't you it's not as if you can then get to that 70 oh i'll just nip to the shop and get this or i need to get some smellies or i need to get this currently how it works is if you're traveling now you need to get a pcr test which you have to pay for you know it doesn't get paid for by the team however when you are with the team and you need a pcr test then things are covered but because i'm commuting i take care of that so every travel i leave the uk for currently i need a pcr test and that has to be done 72 hours before travel and that's without the paperwork of that particular country that you might be flying into there's certain apps that you have to log on a bit like our nhs tracing app there's one of those for every country that you go to And again, every country is different. So I'm heading to France after the training camp, hopefully. And the paperwork that I need to do is, I mean, I've just been sat most of this morning trying to prepare for all of that. Yeah. And it's going to be here for a while, isn't it? I don't think anything's disappearing sort of this year. And we'll have to get used to that different style of travel, that's for sure. 
Conscious of time, Shaz, and I know that you've had so many interviews and podcasts and requests over the last couple of months, so you've probably podded out. But what I thought we'd do as a wrap-up is just maybe a little quick-fire Q&A, if that's right. Yeah, no problem. Fire away. From a rider's perspective, when you were riding, what was your proudest moment? Oh, Champs-Élysées, Tour de France, every time. Oh, but that was amazing. Okay. Yeah. Who's your sporting hero? An American girl called Rebecca Twig on the female side of things. And then, uh, love or hate it, I'm going to have to say Lance Armstrong for the men. Yeah, you can say what you like, but he certainly put the sport on the map, didn't he? That's for sure. Your non-sporting hero. <laughs> I can't tell you what just came into my mind. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I've got one. Okay. If you haven't got one, that's fine. You're having a dinner party. You're only allowed four guests. I'm already sat there, so you're allowed three more. Who's the other three that you're inviting? Wow. I'm going to say Lance Armstrong. I'm going to say George Hincapie. I'm going to say Johan Brunil. And this is all controversial, I guess. There'd be some conversation around that table, wouldn't it? Exactly. Not be short of opinions, that's for sure. Yeah. I think that's a pretty good five, to be fair, with you and I there as well. I'd enjoy that one. If that ever happens, let me know. Make sure I get in my diary. Oh, will do, yeah. <laughs> right, we fast forward. It's December. Hopefully we can catch up for a coffee like we normally do. What's success look like this year for you? Easy. If I can win one race as a sports director with ISN, that will be feet under the table and pointing in the right direction for 2022. Oh, brilliant. Great stuff. Well, what we'll do, Shaz, is obviously wherever we share this and all the platforms, we'll put all your links down for your social media platforms and the same for obviously the cycling team with ISN. They can come and follow you and we'll follow you closely in the team throughout the season. And I hope that races go ahead. I hope that we can get some sort of normality back as soon as we possibly can for all of our well-being. But from everybody on the P3 podcast, I really appreciate your time in such a busy period. And from a personal level, I'm absolutely made up for you and chuffed to bits with what's happened. As difficult as it's been, then you're where you belong and I wish you every success in the future. I appreciate it, Phil. It's always good to talk to you and your support to me over the past personally and professionally has been amazing. So it was a no-brainer just to come and have a bit of a chinwag with you, to be fair. Breaks the day up as well. <laughs> Gets you away from those bits of paper. Yeah, great. Thanks very much, Jez. Take care. No worries. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the P3 Podcast. If you'd like to engage further with us, then please come and follow us across all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts to be one of the first to be notified of any new content.